Open up your Bibles to Psalm 126. Continuing again this morning in our series from the Psalms of Ascent. And you may notice, if you're the type to notice those things, uh, that we're a little out of order. We skipped Psalm 125. That may bother some of you. We'll pick it up, don't worry. The next two weeks, in fact, will be uh, out of order. Uh, when Sean and I initially divvied these up and said, all right, he said, are there any that you'd like to do? Uh, I read through and I said, well, I want to do 130 for sure. That's the one that we sing sometime that from the depths of woe, uh, which is Martin Luther's translation of Psalm 130. So I said, I definitely want to do that one. And then as I was reading through, Psalm 126 uh, really stuck out to me. And as I, I read it, I said, you know, I really think there is uh, and this is what I titled the message today, A Theology of Tears here. And I think that's something that the church needs. I think that's a need for the church, to have a, a theology of tears. And so the message this morning is for two types of people. And I guess if you're not one of those two types, you're out of luck. But um, it's for two types of people, for those currently hurting in some way, and for those who will at some time be hurting in the future. If you've already looked at the outline in the bulletin, your heart may have temporarily stopped. Ten points? Are you kidding me? Um, when I was reading through and, and, I, and I picked Psalm 126, and I said, Ooh, I want to do that one. I knew in the back of my mind this was going to be kind of tough. And so I wrestled with it all week long, and I tried to wrestle it down into uh, three alliterative points. Uh, and, and it just wasn't happening with this psalm or with this theology of tears, which I think is here. Um, and, and by that, by a theology of tears, I mean how do we understand our tears? What does God want to do with them? And so what I share with you this morning are more of observations than sermon points, if you will. Um, but I hope that they will lay for us a proper foundation for understanding our tears and ultimately understanding our joy. Because that's another way that I could have titled this message is a theology of joy. So let's read the psalm and then we'll dig in to these ten observations. Psalm 126, again, the very words of God. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing, bringing his sheaves with him. God's inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, would you help us this morning? to understand our lives on this broken and fallen earth. Help us understand them rightly. 
use your words of Scripture to illumine our understanding. Help us, Holy Spirit, to see how the Gospel, indeed the work of our Lord and Savior, has made a clear path from tears to joy. Help us this morning, we pray, in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. First observation that I have on our list here is admittedly more an observation of the world than it is necessarily of this psalm, but it's necessary. The world's thinking says that the path to joy is one of avoidance. In this psalm, we've got a whole lot of joy. Verse 1, it's this almost delirious quality to joy. We're like those who dream, right? Could this even be real? You know, pinch me, wake me up. It, could this be real? Verse 2, mouths that are filled with laughter. And three times repeated throughout the psalm, shouts of joy. Shouts of joy. Verse 3, we are glad. But you'll see that this joy is also mixed with tears. Joy that even comes out of the tears. And see, this is something that worldly thinking really struggles with. For the world, joy comes not from tears or through tears, but from avoiding tears, from avoiding pain, from avoiding sorrow or suffering. Joy comes by eliminating things that hurt. Joy comes by numbing whatever pain it is that you're feeling. It's a great example this week uh, in the news and on Facebook and Twitter feeds and all of those things. I don't know if it popped up on any, or any of yours, but there's a young lady named Brittany Maynard, who's a 29-year-old who's dying from brain cancer, has a, a very bleak future ahead of her and a very grim prognosis and because of that she has scheduled her death November 1st will be the day of her death she's moved her family from California to Oregon because Oregon is a, a, a physician assisted suicide friendly state there are laws there that allow that and she has her prescription in hand a lethal medication that her doctor has prescribed and so come 11-1-2014 she said in a CNN interview that she knows that she's going to die on her own terms she doesn't want her family to experience her suffering she doesn't want hospice care because and I, and I quote there's no guarantees that she wouldn't suffer. She said now that she's got this prescription in hand, she's able to seek joy in her remaining days. And she calls her pill a safety net. See, there's no way in her mind that joy could come through or from the suffering but only by avoiding the suffering. And that's true for the world. For, for the world, joy is the absence of tears.
tears. It's the avoidance of pain and sorrow and suffering. And so that's the world's thinking, and, and it might be yours. And so that leads to number two on our list. In a broken and fallen world, joy and sorrow ebb and flow. They're the reality of our lives here on earth. Verse 1, it says, when the Lord restored the fortunes. Well, that means that at some point the fortunes had been lost. They, if they needed restoring, at some point they had been lost. There was some period of poverty or loss or captivity. Uh, and so the question as you begin to study any passage of Scripture and this psalm in general, well, what's the context for this? What's going on? that they're talking about this restoral of fortunes. And there are lots of options here. There are lots of things it could have been. It could have been when God's people were enslaved in Egypt and then they experienced the Red Sea crossing and the Exodus. It could be while they were in the wilderness wandering and then finally get to enter the promised land. It could have been much later. It could have been the Babylonian captivity and when they are allowed to return. And again, as they often are, the psalm is written just broadly enough that it can apply to lots of these things. It can even apply for us this morning and for the situations that you and I find ourselves in. Look at, at verse 1 again. It was wonderful when this happened. It was like we were in a dream. But now in verse 4, if you jump down, they're in a situation again where they're crying out to the Lord, do it again, Lord. Restore our fortunes again. And so they're remembering the past and they're asking for more in the present. Tears and joy, and then more tears, and the hope and the expectation of more joy to come. And, and this is our experience on this earth. The joy that we experience in this moment it won't last, right? There will be more sorrow. There will be more tears. It's a, it's a broken and fallen world awaiting our final redemption. And so joy and tears are going to ebb and flow until in the end when the Lord returns and makes all things new. So that's our, our, the reality of our existence, this ebbing and flowing of joy and tears. Number three, the Lord's restoration will be surprising. This psalm shows that when the Lord's joy does come, boy does it come. And the psalmist is trying to show you that with these images that he's using, both the surprising suddenness of joy's arrival and the surprising magnitude of that arrival. We've already seen in, in verse 1 this, can it even be real quality to this joy? It's just too good to be true. In verse 2, mouths that are filled with laughter, there's no room for anything else in these shouts of joy. But there's one more image in verse 4, these, these streams in the Negev, which is a desert. It doesn't have any streams ordinarily. It's dry, parched, barren land and some dried up empty stream beds, right? but it's a desert and they're empty, but all it takes is a sudden rainstorm, even in an afternoon, an inch of rain, 
fills these stream beds. The ground is so hard and so dry that the water can't soak in, and so it just rushes right across the wadi, is what it's called, and flows through these stream beds. And then the next morning, because of even just a little bit of rain, there's an overnight transformation. And these little grasses pop up in an instant, these little flowers that can bloom just in an instant from this one shower. And overnight, it's a completely different place. That's what, it like, that's what it's like when God brings joy out of our sorrow. You think about the Exodus and this sudden miraculous escape. One minute they're making bricks in the hot baking sun, enslaved to Pharaoh, and the next minute they find themselves in the middle of the Red Sea with a wall of water here and a wall of water here. That is sudden and surprising joy. Think about the release from captivity in Babylon. They've been dragged 600 miles from home by one king. And then another king comes along and says, okay, you're free. In an instant, everything's changed. You can go back. You can go back home. You can go back and and rebuild this temple that you have so sorely been missing. This is sudden and overwhelming. And that's the nature of joy when it comes out of sorrow. It's surprising in its suddenness. It's surprising in its magnitude. Number four. The joy that comes out of our sorrow is a powerful and God-glorifying witness. This is part of a theology of tears is that when God wipes away the tears, he gets the glory. When God rescues his people, helpless and undeserving though we are, His power and His goodness are magnified. They're put on stage for the whole world to see. And that's exactly what happens here in verse 2 of our psalm. Our mouth was filled with laughter, our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, Wow, the Lord has done great things for them. People are watching they know you're a Christ follower, if they know you worship the Lord, they're watching and they're interested to see what happens to you when you face adversity. Friends, I have good news for you this morning. I hope it's encouraging to you that you don't have to be happy all the time to be an effective witness for the Lord. You don't have to always put on a happy face. You don't have to fake it until you can make it. Because God is actually more glorified by restoring joy to weak and wounded sinners than he is by our stiff upper lip. If you will just read through the Old Testament. And if you will read through the Old Testament with an eye for the phrase, for the sake of my name. And the parallel phrase, for the sake of my great name. Try reading through the Old Testament looking for that phrase. It's amazing all the things the Lord does for his fame, for his reputation, for his glory. And rescuing 
weak and wounded and suffering and sorrowing sinners is part of it. The Lord wants to bring joy out of your tears because he gets the glory. The world's watching. And the Lord longs to glorify himself in this way. Number five, the Bible shows that joy is available even in pain and sorrow. That joy is available especially in pain and in sorrow. See, the world's thinking is that joy and tears are are antithetical. That they are mutually exclusive. That if you have one, you necessarily can't have the other. But the biblical pattern over and over again is that for God's people, tears are a precursor of joy. Over and over and over again. Verses 5 and 6 of this psalm, the link between tears and joy could not be made more plainly. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This a picture of an abundant harvest of joy. And it's not just this psalm, Psalm 30. You know it, weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. It's not just in the Psalms, and it's not just where the actual words joy and tears are used, but it's a biblical principle that God is at work in his people's trials and difficulties. Uh, Romans 5, uh, starting in verse 3, very famous passage. Uh, Not only that, but we rejoice, all right, joy, we rejoice in our sufferings. How backwards is that from the world's understanding? We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance, character, and character, hope. And this hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts. See, our suffering produces something because God's at work. It's used of him. Philippians 4, full of joy. Paul's admonition in Philippians 4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. And now I find it interesting that just two verses later, we have this other famous part of Philippians 4, don't be anxious. All right, rejoice in the Lord always, again I say, and then a mere two verses later, he's saying, don't be anxious. Now, we don't run around telling people, don't be anxious, unless there's a cause for anxiety. Right, that's when we are reminding each other, don't be anxious. Not when things are rosy and and looking up. So something's going on here for the Philippians that's causing them to be anxious, and Paul is telling them, rejoice. So he's either being cruel, telling them to rejoice in the midst of some anxiety-producing event, or it really is possible. It really is possible to have joy in the midst of difficulty. Oh, yeah. Where was 
Paul when he was writing that letter to the Philippian church? Yeah, he was in prison. It really is possible. Joy and tears are not mutually exclusive. Now these next three, six, seven, and eight, um, they're not in any particular order and they kind of blend over into each other, so you've been forewarned. Number six, actively wait for the Lord's restoration. Actively wait for the return of joy. Okay, and so I've mentioned there was some initial problem where fortunes were restored, joy was returned, there was great celebration, and now something's happened again in the normal course of life where they're crying out again, Lord, do it again, restore our fortunes again. And so verses 5 and 6 are instructive for us. They're not wallowing, they're not whining, they're not quitting, they're not giving up, they're sowing. There's some activity that they're engaged in. They're sowing their tears as they wait for the Lord to bring restoration and joy. But it's an active kind of waiting. See, if you know that joy does come in the morning for God's people, if you know that he is at work in our difficulties, if you, like Paul, know that we can rejoice in hard times, then the hard times and the tears are not wasted time. We're not stuck, but we can keep on. We can keep praying and crying out. We can keep working. We can keep sowing our tears as we wait for his restoration. Seven is a little bit more about sowing. Sowing tears is risky. Sowing any kind of seed is is risky. It's difficult work and it requires faith. I think sowing is the perfect picture here that the psalmist could have used for our theology of tears. Because what do you do when you sow? You're taking an action where you expect a future reward. You expect something to come in the future. You take your seed, you bury it, and you wait to see what happens. And you know what should happen. You know what you think is going to happen. But there aren't any guarantees. So it is with sowing our tears and our pains and our sorrows. We actively wait. We know that God is at work. At least we know in the back of our mind. We know at a head level. But we don't have any guarantees about how he's going to do it. Is joy going to come instantly? Or is joy going to come on the other side of of a few more tears? We know that God's in control. We know he's working all things for our good. But oh, how our hearts are in turmoil in the meantime. And so we cry out, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I'm sowing these tears, I'm waiting, I'm expecting. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, and and he will give the very faith that's required as we wait and as we sow. And he has to because sowing is difficult. 
number eight sheds yet a little more light on that, I think. The path to joy involves remembering and hopeful, hope-filled expectation. The world says, in order to have joy, you've got to avoid. The Bible says, in order to have joy, you've got to remember. The whole first part of the psalm is about remembering. It was like a dream. It was so wonderful. There were shouts of joy. The nations were even commenting about it. And we agreed with them. Lord, you have done great things for us. And we were glad. We are glad. In fact, much of the whole Psalter is about remembering. It's a call for God's people to remember because God's people have been incredibly well cared for and we are unbelievably forgetful. Incredibly well provided for and unbelievably forgetful. And so we need to do what the psalmist does at the very beginning. He's remembering God's past faithfulness. So when you're in trouble now, when the tears are rolling down your face now, when there is no joy now, remember. Remember back to a time, and you shouldn't have to think too far, when the Lord restored your fortunes, when you were like one who dreams, when your mouth was filled with laughter and your tongue with shouts of joy, and when you could say, the Lord has done great things for me. I'm glad. The Lord has done great things for us. And we have to take those remembrances of those things and apply them to the present and to the future. Then we'll have this hope-filled expectation that you see in verses 5 and 6. These tears are going to produce joy. There is going to be a harvest. There are going to be sheaves. There are going to be armloads full of joy when the Lord meets me in this and restores. Now, number nine makes or breaks this whole thing. Why is it that God's people have such a strong expectation and a reason for hope in a restoration of joy? Is this all just wishful and positive thinking? Or is there something larger at work here that guarantees that joy will, in fact, come out of our sorrow? Part of the reasoning behind Brittany Maynard's thinking and her planning her own death is that she believes that a death that includes pain and suffering lacks dignity. And that's become real important buzzwords for the whole uh, physician-assisted suicide campaign, if you will. Death with dignity. That's, that's the goal. That's the objective. If you suffer, they say, you have lost your dignity. Therefore, joy comes from knowing you're not going to suffer. And friends, that just simply isn't true. We know it's not true. We know it's not true because of our Lord Jesus. 
who for the joy set before him endured the cross and scorned its shame. For the joy set before him, he suffered and died. Whatever Miss Maynard's death from this cancer would look like, and I'm sure it would be painful and unpleasant. It still wouldn't hold a candle to what our Lord experienced. In our place. For us. For his own joy did he experience it and suffer it. And so please don't tell me that as he suffered and bled and died, that his suffering and his tears somehow lacked dignity. Because that was death with dignity indeed. And it's because of his suffering and death that we can know that joy will come out of our sorrow. Because of what he endured for the joy set before him, we can know with great certainty that joy will, in fact, come out of our tears. Why? Because what was he doing as he suffered and he bled and he died? He was taking away the biggest possible cause of our suffering and pain and tears. Whatever we have left to experience in this life on this earth pales in dramatic fashion to what we would have experienced apart from Christ, to what we deserve to experience because of our sin and rebellion. And it's been taken away. It's been removed and it's done forever through the work of Christ. That, friends, is the reason that we can know. We can know. Yes, we will have tears in this life. There will be this ebb and flow between tears and joy. And no, all of the tears may not get resolved in the way that we would like for them to in this life. But if you belong to him, you've got an ultimate hope one day. That every tear will be resolved once and for all you've got an ultimate hope one day that there will be no more tears and so i can't think of a of a better way to conclude a theology of tears but then to look at the end of tears and so this is where we'll conclude revelation 21 then i saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Let's pray together. O oh God, would you grant to us a proper understanding of our tears and an understanding of what you are doing in and through them, how you're bringing yourself glory, how you are proclaiming your goodness and your greatness to a watching world, how you are producing in us that which you desire to produce how you are bringing about over and over again for your people joy out of tears, joy out of pain, joy out of sorrow because of the fact that Christ took away our greatest reason for tears and reason for sorrow and possible reason for suffering and he bore them all in his flesh. So, Lord Jesus, we thank you and we praise you that you, for joy that was set before you, endured tears and endured pain and endured great suffering on our behalf. Would you take the reality of that and would you comfort us with it? Would you help us by it? Would you help us to sow our tears? Would you grant to us the faith that we need to wait expectantly and hopefully for you to bring joy out of our sorrow? We know that you will. Help our unbelieving hearts when they waver. We love you and we thank you in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.